Hello, and welcome to Health Careers with Dr. Martin, where we have deep, personalized, and eye-opening conversations with various people in healthcare. We learn what it's really like to work in different health careers from people who are living it today. I'm your host, Dr. Richard Martin, and welcome. Hello, everyone. Welcome. Hope everyone is doing well. Before we get to our next guest, I just want to remind everyone to please visit the website for this podcast. You can do a number of things there. Uh, You can learn more about the show, learn more about each guest, read the show notes, uh, even view the transcriptions for each podcast. Uh, And you can also sign up for for my email list so I can let you know when the next show will be available. And finally, uh, you can contact me. Uh, Why would you want to contact me? Well, if you think there's a health career you'd like to know about, a guest that we should maybe invite to the show, you will find that a lot of our guests early on in the podcast will be people that I have worked with or that I know personally, and they are fantastic at their job. But I also want to have other people on this podcast and invite other people to this podcast that are really good at their job as well that I just haven't known yet. So if you know someone, please let them or reach out to me or you reach out to me yourself and and I'd love to hear from you. Of course, if you'd like to be featured on this podcast yourself, I would also love to hear from you. Uh, and then of course, there's people that maybe have a idea of how I can make this podcast better for you. For whatever reason, you can reach out to me through the website contact page. Again, the website is H C with drmarn.com. That's H as in health, C as in careers, W I T H D R M A R N.com. Well, let's get on to our next guest here. So, the next guest is a good friend of mine, Dr. Tamisha Frempong. Dr. Frempong is a board certified ophthalmologist and a pediatric ophthalmologist. She attended Yale University for college with a degree in psychobiology. She then became a Fulbright Scholar, receiving a research grant. After that, she attended Yale Medical School. She also completed a one-year Master's of Public Health degree at Yale. She then went on to a medicine internship at Mount Sinai School of Medicine, did her ophthalmology residency at the University of Pennsylvania School of Medicine, and finalized her training at the Duke University School of Medicine in Pediatric Ophthalmology and Strabismus Fellowship. She has several awards. One I already mentioned was a Fulbright Research Grant, but she also is part of the AOA, or Alpha Omega Alpha Honor Society. She belongs to several appointments, such as a member of the Women in Ophthalmology, the American Academy of Ophthalmology, and the American Association of Pediatric Ophthalmology and Strabismus. She has presented several lectures and presentations at various meetings in multiple countries, and she currently is an assistant professor at the Department of Ophthalmology at Mount Sinai in New York, is the director of services of pediatric ophthalmology at Elmhurst Hospital in New York, and is vice chair of diversity and inclusion at Mount Sinai Health System in New York City. I really enjoyed this interview with this good friend of mine, and I hope you enjoyed it too. Let's get started. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Frempong. How are you? I'm great. I'm so happy to be here. Listen, I'm very happy you are here with us today. 
Um, for our listeners, Dr. Frempong and I have known each other for a long time. I think, what, 10 years? Yeah. Um, when I was at Mount Sinai, we used to work together doing pediatric surgical cases. And we used to have a lot of fun. Yeah, we did. <laughs> I, I miss you there. I know. I know. I miss coming back there, too. Um, but I would say, you know, at least my, my view, my assessment is that really you're really a fantastic physician and surgeon. Super intelligent and very kind and caring and empathetic. I just want to let you know that. Thank you, Dr. Marn. I'm so grateful. <laughs> no, you know, I, I think that, you know, we're so fortunate to be um, healthcare workers, physicians, uh, care providers, if you will, because we have every opportunity every day to show compassion and generosity and kindness. And those are some of the things that I love the most about the work we do. Yes, I mean, we have a very unique position, don't we? We do. You know, as a career, I would describe yours as an ophthalmologist, but you specialize in pediatric ophthalmology. Is that an appropriate description? And if so, what are your responsibilities? It is. So, um, of course, we all train as general ophthalmologists first, and then we can subspecialize. So my subspecialty is pediatric ophthalmology and adult strabismus. So what that means is I do um, everything for kids, whether that means um, managing things as simple as glasses and amblyopia, which is a situation where they may not see well out of one eye for a variety of reasons and may require patching or other types of intervention to help improve vision in the weaker eye, um, in addition to any other kind of uh, pathology or disease that happens to the eye in kids. So believe it or not, kids can be born with cataracts or develop cataracts mm -hmm. as they grow. They can be born with or develop glaucoma. They can be born with a droopy eyelid, which we call ptosis, which can uh, cause them to lose vision, um, and various other uh, pathologies of the eye. So I would manage those. Um, and for adults, I manage strictly uh, double vision or ocular misalignment. So there are various conditions that can cause that. Some of them are systemic. Some of them are isolated to the eye. And the management for that in adults could be medication versus special type of glasses called glasses with prisms in them, or actually surgery to correct the ocular misalignment and relieve their double vision if they have it. What it you mentioned strabismus. What is that? So strabismus is misalignment of the eyes. So in order for us to have good binocular vision, meaning we're able to use the two eyes well together, <clears throat> we have good depth perception, we need the two eyes to be aligned and working well. Uh, when one eye is off center or not in alignment with the other eye, patients with good vision in each eye typically have double vision. In kids, actually, kids have a lot of adaptive mechanisms because their brains are so plastic and can adapt to various conditions. Adult brains are not as um, plastic or adjustable. And so an adult with a new onset misalignment of the eyes, as long as they have good vision, not blind in one eye, right, or have se severely mm -hmm. decreased, they will have double vision. Kids 
you know, kids rarely complain about double vision, maybe in the acute setting when it first, first happens. Um, if they're old enough to appreciate it, they may have double vision and then they would close an eye to eliminate the second image and that kind of thing. So strabismus is also called squint for that reason, because kids it early on in the development of their um, misalignment may close an eye or squint an eye in order to eliminate the double vision. But their brains are so adaptable that their brains learn how to suppress the second image, which is why strabismus or ocular misalignment in kids can cause vision loss. It's kind of a use it or lose it um, situation. So if you don't use the eye, you will lose the vision when you're young. How do you, uh, you obviously take care of take care of very young children? children, almost newborns, don't you at times? Yeah, absolutely. But vision is also very personalized. In other words, you know, uh, what I see is not what you're going to see, you know, versus something that's a, that's an injury on an arm where everybody can see it. So how does a young child, how do you know a kid who can't even talk yet verbalize they have a problem? How do people even know to check for that? Uh, that's, that's a good question. Um, so you're right. Vision is a subjective experience, right? Just because somebody can see doesn't tell you how well they can see. Mm -hmm. uh, you can tell whether or not somebody can see. I mean, we've all seen maybe blind people in our lives and they don't seem to fixate well, right? Their eyes may be wandering um, if you happen to have ever seen a truly blind person, um, especially somebody who's been blind from early on in life will develop something called nystagmus, or they can develop nystagmus depending on the cause of their blindness. Now, nystagmus is shaky eyes, so their eyes don't sit still. It's like dancing eyes. It kind of just moves around a lot. Um, so nystagmus very, very early on in life tells you that your child or a child is not seeing well. Also, you know, children aren't born with 20-20 vision you know they, they their their vision probably at birth is about 2400 it's blurry they're not seeing very well but as the visual system develops um children the vision develops better and then they start picking up fixation they start tracking you know they may they may stare at you know whoever's feeding them or faces are a good visual target for kids they like faces so they you know they would you know hold on to your face or if you hold a toy in front of them they will follow it so they're very crude ways of making an assessment of whether or not someone can see or not let's say a child mm -hmm. had uh problems in their vision in one eye say the one eye was fine one eye wasn't seeing well right. um sometimes if that happens I told you it's sort of a use it or lose it kind of phenomenon, but you know, it's kind of a chicken and egg thing. If the eye is not straight, they'll lose vision. But if the eye doesn't see well, it won't be straight. <laughs> so uh -huh. yeah, so sometimes uh, strabismus can be a result of poor vision. Okay, so in that situation, when a child comes in and, and, and often that may be a warning sign to the parents that there's something wrong with with an eye or something wrong with the vision. I may be totally normal too. I may be anatomically normal, but there's something in the visual pathway, that visual system that's not working well. Um, so in that case, a, a child comes in, even a baby, a nonverbal baby, parents concerned there's a problem, vision's not good, one eye seems to be wandering all the time or, or intermittently wandering, but they notice that the eyes aren't always straight. In that situation, if you cover the wandering eye, just put a hand over the wandering eye or put mm -hmm. an occluder over the wandering eye, 
the child will still be fine and cooing and playing. But if you put an, a hand or an occluder over the good eye or the sound eyes, we call it, then the child would become very, very fussy, letting and, and pushing your hand away and um, letting you know, basically, that they're not seeing well. Ah, so that, that's very interesting. So you can actually do some things to exacerbate the situation and help you uh, lead you down to a, maybe a diagnosis down the line. Yeah, I wouldn't say exacerbate, but just to uh, uncover it. You know, uh-huh. so so if a child is, it, you know, most people have have two two eyes, right? We're born. Some kids are yeah. born without an eye, actually, believe it or not. But um, most of most people are born with two eyes, and um, if one eye is working well but the other eye isn't, um, a child may not be aware of that, right? So a child may just be fine, and they will never complain. That's why. Children, when they go to their pediatricians, even as babies, and they have their well baby checks, the pediatrician will make some sort of crude assessment there as well. Um, And then they also do vision screening once the child is sort of old enough to cooperate with that type of test, where they actually attempt to, you know, check the child's vision one eye at a time. Because with both eyes open, the child may seem to see well, no problem. But if you include one eye, and especially if you occlude the good eye, you'll uncover the problem in the problem eye. You know, as you work at an academic center, mm-hmm. Mount Sinai Hospital, um, what uh, what is your day like working in that type of location? What is your typical day like as a pediatric ophthalmologist? Yeah, you know, I think um, when you work in an academic setting, um, it, the day can be very varied, right? Because some days you may be in the office seeing patients all day. Some days you could be in surgery. And I think that's true for any um, doctor who, whether you're in private practice or um, in an academic setting. What's different about being in an academic setting is that you also have academic type responsibilities. So for example, um, you may have to give lectures to students, whether that be medical students or residents or fellows. Mm -hmm. Um, You may serve on various committees. Um, When Mount Sinai did have the um, Alpha Omega Alpha Society, I was a member of that committee to, um, it's an honor society in medicine to select medical students and residents or faculty members who've been nominated um, to join that society. So I was part of that. So that requires going through applications and then having meetings and mm-hmm. and making those joint decisions. I'm also part of something called the grievance committee at the medical school. So um, if an issue comes up, whether it be, um, you know, a sexual harassment or some way that um, a faculty member or student feels that they've been harmed in some way, discrimination, various issues can come up. Um, And so I would be part of a committee to hear those issues and um, make some judgments about them. And these are all responsibilities that I take very seriously. I feel honored to be a part of them. Um, it's a lot of work, and but it it it, it also gives us a, an opportunity to have um, fairness and equity mm-hmm. in 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 the system. So 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 my day could be 
you know, being in the office, seeing patients, being in the operating room, doing surgery, uh, giving lectures, or having various meetings um, with regards to the committees that I'm a part of. The other thing that I, I do too is, and I, and I founded, I started for our department at Mount Sinai, is um, the East Harlem Health Outreach uh, program for ophthalmology. So I, I do that with medical students. That is a student-run organization that provides uh, free medical care to indigent uh, pe- uh, people in the East Harlem community. So people who don't have insurance, um, who c- could not get care otherwise. So I would staff an ophthalmology clinic. Initially, I was um, doing it alone, but now several of my colleagues have joined in. And so we all share the responsibility. And that's done on a weekend, usually a Saturday, um, once a month or so, once or twice a month. So uh, as an academic uh, physician, you're able to not only do your clinical work, but you actually participate in some administrative activities, um, some lecturing, uh, and even some outreach. And and of course, this is something that that you choose. It's not um, it's not something that people are requiring you to, to do necessarily. Um, yeah, I mean, I think you you try to. Well, some of it is uh, it's an alignment with your personal interests and values, right? Got so, it. so as an ophthalmologist, one of the one of the nice things about ophthalmology is that it lends itself very well to uh, mission work and international work and and volunteering. So I also work for a foundation called the Virtue Foundation and also another foundation called the West African Health, um, uh, the West African Health Foundation. And, um, and so I, for the past, I don't know, eight years, I've been going to seven years, because this would have been my eighth year, I believe, but we had to cancel because of COVID. Yes. um, Where I've been going to Mongolia and also to Ghana to do uh, free surgeries for uh, patients in a rural part of Mongolia and in um, in a village in Ghana to uh, teach local providers and to um, and to help them with the overflow of cases that they have if they especially in some of these rural areas there may not be a pediatric ophthalmologist in fact we only go to places where um, the there's a need right so if we if there's a place that i mean they're you know in the capital for instance in ghana or even in mongolia in ulaanbaatar they're they're wonderful ophthalmologists there right and they're in their pediatric ophthalmologists there so there's no reason for me to be there right so but but in the rural areas that's where um there's a dearth of providers and so that's where we spend our time anyway i can't justify uh i couldn't justify uh going to these sort of exotic type or you know interesting places if you know charity begins at home first so because of that Uh i i decided to reach out to the medical students who were uh part of this east harlem outreach program to establish an ophthalmology arm of it you know so because there are plenty of needy people right in our own backyards so so some of the things you may initiate but some of the things um, you're invited uh, to to do some of these administrative tasks because somebody thinks that you know you may provide a unique 
perspective or um, it may you may be well suited to participate in something like this. So so um, I am already a member of the AOA Society or Alpha Omega Alpha. And so for that reason, I was asked to join the committee at Mount Sinai to uh, select future candidates. And uh, the grievance committee was something I was invited to do. But I'm I'm really uh, that that's one committee. I all of them I really enjoy, but I particularly enjoy that because I've heard several cases now and i do think you know being a woman of color um that i would bring a unique perspective to um making certain decisions uh that can you know affect somebody's career or future yes so um so i i'm i'm that one i was invited to to join and um and i'm honored to do so when you're in the clinic what what does your day start like? Is it usually you show up at eight o'clock, nine o'clock, and then you see how many patients a day you see? Uh, you see them basically. You, they come and sit in a chair, and you have a lot of tools. Could you describe some of the, the specifics? The specifics of what you, the tools you use when you examine somebody. Sure. So uh, it depends on the age of the person. Um, needless to say, uh, what I would use on a baby is not the same thing I would use on a seventeen-year-old or. A 65 year old but in any case uh, yeah the day typically starts around eight o'clock and um, fortunately we have technicians that also assist us right so they would be the first point of contact after the patient is uh, checked into the office the technician would take the patient into a room and um, get a bit of a history know why the patient is there know you know whatever other medical problems they've had what are the surgeries they right. may have had um, uh, what medications they may be taking, and then they would do the the basic exam. So the basic exam would be, would include checking vision, uh, checking if the patient is wearing glasses, checking to see what is in their glasses, and then checking a refraction. So to to see if what they need to see well jives with what they're wearing and if they're not wearing something then they may need to be wearing something which may be the reason why they even came in Um, so they'll check vision they'll check a refraction they'll check the eye pressure and then and then i would come into the room so i would come into the room i would again you know introduce myself if i don't already know the patient uh find out a little bit more details about um why they're there or if we're already managing a condition that they have, finding out, you know, how our interventions are working for them. And then I may sometimes have to repeat uh, some parts of the exam if I find some inconsistencies, you know, that I expected them to see better or I, I don't expect them to see as well as what was recorded. Um, sometimes that can happen in amblyopia. You know, a child has decreased vision in one eye. Maybe we're patching and giving them glasses and that sort of thing. And then they miraculously, they come in and then their vision is miraculously better. And I'm like, <laughs> okay, I am I think I'm a good doctor, but I don't think I'm a, 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 a magician, you know. And so I would recheck the vision and find that, you know, the technician didn't realize that the child was peaking. So the child was actually, you know, not fully occluding the good eye. And so that was, you know... The vision that was measured in the in the weaker eye was actually coming from the good eye, and kids oh. don't do that to be dishonest or you know right. they're, they're they're just trying to win you know they're trying to be right they're trying to make you happy you know mm-hmm. so um, so that's always a little um, a little uh, you know pearl to to consider when you're 
when you're if, if the numbers don't make sense you know recheck it right. just like if you check somebody's blood pressure and it seems way higher than you than their normal or way lower than their normal you know you have to recheck because it could be so so anyway and then um, and then I would check the ocular alignment um, if that's an issue for them. And then I may have to put in dilating drops so we can also e- uh, examine the back of the eye. But you also do, now this is part of the clinic, but you also do surgery. Yes. How is that different than what you're doing in the clinic? Oh, um, the environments are just so different. You know, um, I love surgery actually, and which is why I chose to you know, chose the surgical subspecialty. Um, in, in in the office, you know, you're you're seeing patients, you're prescribing things, or or even discharging them from your practice if they're fine and don't really need anything. Although people usually need at least an annual exam just to make sure everything is okay. Um, you know, and that's an in and out, you know, patients are, you know, coming in and going out and coming in and all day, it's that same thing. And and then a typical day, you know, I may have anywhere from, it depends, 30 to 50 patients on the schedule for a given day. Um, in the operating room, it's a, it's a smaller number of patients, right? I may have anywhere from I don't know, on a, on a busier day, six or seven, and on a lighter day, maybe three or four cases on. And um, those are, you know, and the cases may vary. It may be a cataract case. It may be a lot of what I do is strabismus because that's more common. Um, Mm -hmm. And it could span, you know, the age range, as I said before. Um, But that is, that environment is very different, you know, clinic environment versus the operating room. The operating room is, you know, very controlled. Um, it's, a, it's all a team-based approach, but the thing I love so much about surgery is the dance we do, you know? I think mm-hmm. it's sort of this choreographed dance when everybody is doing their job and doing it well, it's beautiful. Right. Like you there's there are times when you're operating, you don't even really have to say much. You know, everybody is sort of in that zone is following mm-hmm. along with surgery and knows what you need and is making adjustments to, you know, helping your exposure or what have you. And also, as you know, Dr. Martin, working closely with your anesthesiologist can make or break a case, you know. Mm-hmm. So I've been very lucky in working with you and, and Dr. Renee Davis and, and you know, other, other uh, pediatric anesthesiologists at Mount Sinai that, you know, so contribute to, you know, an efficient and pleasant work environment. Do all ophthalmologists do surgery? No, um, many do, probably the majority do, but um, there's some ophthalmologists, like for instance, some neuro-ophthalmologists who don't do surgery at all. Uh, That's one specialty that uh, may not do surgery. Also, but but I but there are neuro ophthalmologists who do still do some surgery or do do surgery. Um, medical retina specialists uh, don't do surgery in the operating room, but they would do uh, intraocular injections. You know, uh, injecting uh, medicine directly into the back of the eye or front of the eye. Uh, they would do laser procedures in the office. And that sort of thing. So they do; they're very procedure oriented, but they wouldn't be doing surgery as such in the operating room. Okay. Um, can you 
describe a can you tell us a, a, a patient or that you took care of that really left an impression on you <laughs> there's so many uh one that uh one that pops up to pops into my mind that uh touched my heart when i was a resident it was when i was a resident and uh you know we do a lot of cataract surgery in adults uh in residency uh, people who are general ophthalmologists or cornea specialists or glaucoma specialists may continue to do a lot of cataract surgery in their regular job. But for me, my adult cataract surgery experience was very concentrated in my residency. And I remember there was this woman, and I can't remember exactly where she was from. I know she was Asian, and I know she didn't speak English. And she came in for her uh, cataract eval with her son. And her vision was horrible she saw like counting fingers vision like she could just you know if you put fingers up in front of her she can see that but anything beyond that she couldn't see Mm. she had very (laughs) dense white cataracts so i remember doing i think it was her first cataract first eye and um it was a very difficult case because her cataracts were so dense. And so we had to use quite a bit of energy in the eye. And so the next day, we always see patients on what we call post-operative day one, the day after surgery, she had a lot of corneal edema. So her cornea was swollen and it was a little cloudy. So her Mm -hmm. vision was certainly better the day after surgery than it was before surgery, but it wasn't anywhere near perfect, right? And then a week after surgery, we saw her again, and she came in hugging, like hugging me, like, good doctor, good doctor. And then her son told me that like a week or so, you know, a few days ago or or about five days after the surgery, she woke up one day and started ferociously cleaning her house because she said, this place is a dump (laughs) (laughs) because she hadn't seen it in so long because her vision was so bad. And so that was really a touching moment, you know, because you took this person from practical blindness to, mm-hmm. you know, good vision. To uh, uh, clarity. Yeah. So that was really um, something. An- That's awesome. I have another story. Yeah. Um, so this this also was in my residency, but I, I uh, got, the lesson was reinforced in my fellowship. So uh, a woman came in with what we call anisocoria. She had a difference in pupil size. So one pupil was small, one pupil was very big. Got it. And um, that's a neurologic emergency, right? Because it could be something going on in the brain and something going on in the brain that could kill you. So she comes into the emergency room and there's, you know, they do like a million dollar workup and, you know, she has an MRI and all this stuff to look to see if this woman is having some sort of pathology going on in her brain. And she comes and then they, you know, they, they called ophthalmology and we came to evaluate the patient and we found out that her dog had a corneal ulcer and she was a part of the treatment for the dog was using atropine eye drops. Okay. And so um, atropine is an eye drop that dilates the pupil. So right. she she had ended up having some of the drop on her finger and not realizing rubbed an eye and dilated her own pupil. And atropine can last for a week. So 
Oh. Right. So the key there was getting the appropriate history. You know, and I remember when I was in my fellowship, um, I trained at Duke with um, a preeminent uh, pediatric uh, ophthalmologist who's also a neuro-ophthalmologist, who's also now the chair of ophthalmology at Duke. Um, his name is Ed Buckley. And, you know, he's, he's just a masterful um, in this specialty. And so patients would come to him from all over, having gone to all the preeminent uh programs in the country for whatever their issue was, right? So they'd right. go to Baskin Palmer and Johns Hopkins and, you know, all these great places. And then they'd come to him. And sometimes the solution or the, the, the diagnosis was so simple. And he would say, you know what this patient needed? A doctor who listened to them, <laughs> you know, because <laughs> sometimes it's just getting the right history. You know, sometimes we get so caught up in what we're seeing that we forget to ask the patient, tell me what happened. You know, when did this start? And and we're trained to do that. But sometimes I think that's why I think it's always so important to have a, a pattern, to have a system of doing things so that you don't skip through steps, you know. And um, so have a systematic approach to every patient so that you don't you don't miss something. You know, often I think of ophthalmology as very technical, mm-hmm. as a very technical specialty. Uh, but you're, you know, you highlight that it's, it is very technical, but you also have to um, still be very much of a physician and take a, a, a thorough history and not just focus just on the eyes. Well, I'll tell you something about that. I remember when I was in medical school trying to decide what to do. Mm-hmm. And um, I changed. Like initially, when I came to medical school, I said I, I don't know exactly. I, th- I thought I wanted to be a pediatrician, general pediatrician, or, okay. or maybe a, a pediatric um, hematologist because I had a huge interest in sickle cell disease and done some research in that before medical school. And um, so that's where I was leaning. And I said, absolutely not surgery. Absolutely <laughs> not surgery because. Um, some of the personalities of the people in my um, in my m- medical school class who wanted to be surgeons were the you know uber type A's like super aggressive and you know I think I, I'm certainly type A and I'm certainly <laughs> but but I'm not I, I'm I don't know They're, we called them gunners in medical school I don't know if yeah. You, yeah. yeah you know that wasn't really my personality so I said absolutely not um, not surgery. Until I actually, one, I had a, one of my first rotations in medical school was, um, it was uh, ENT. And the head of ENT at that time was a, a man called Clarence Sasaki. Again, a masterful, masterful surgeon who would do complex head and neck dissections. And he thought, I think for various reasons, I, you know, I, I was very into it. I loved being in the operating room. I think I, I was a good assistant as a medical student, you know, learning, you know, our job is to sort of suction and, and keep the smoke away and, and dab the area of blood and, and retract the tissue to help with visualization. And I, I think I did that pretty well. I think that's, I think, I think he noticed that I was paying attention and that I Mm -hmm. was following along. And then at the end, um, the, the, he would throw me a bone and, and teach me how to close skin. And he told me I had good hands and he was really encouraging me to do ENT. And 
Uh, today, I regret not exploring that more. The reason why I did it was because he was doing all these complex surgeries. I was like, oh, my God, this is stressing me out. No, I can't. I don't want to do that. No, <laughs> you know, in any case, um, once I once I explored uh, once once I, I thought I could be a surgeon and I realized how much I actually loved it, um, I. Uh, I, I, I learned more about ophthalmology and, and did a rotation and really enjoyed it. Um, so yes, it's very technical, but it, when I was trying to decide on ophthalmology, I thought, oh my God, really? I'm going to learn all this medicine and then just be an eye doctor, <laughs> you know, just, mm -hmm. just focus mm -hmm. on this one organ. Uh, I don't know if yeah. I could do that. That just seems like silly. It seemed silly to me at the time until I understood um, that as an ophthalmologist, you still have to be a doctor. You know, you still have to understand uh, systemic uh, diseases and systemic diseases with ocular manifestations because sometimes the first sign of your cancer, uh, whether it be your breast cancer or your liver cancer or your whatever can manifest in the eye. Your first sign of diabetes, your first sign of an impending stroke can happen in the eye. So you still have to be a whole doctor and you still have to understand medicine and the human body to be an eye doctor and to be a very good eye doctor, to take very good care of the patients that entrusts, you know, their vision and their lives really to you. You know, I want to get to your origin story because you alluded to it earlier. But before we move on, what is your favorite part about your job? Uh, I would say my favorite part. I mean, I, I like I said, I love surgery. I, I it's mm. funny. I was I was talking about it with one of the anesthesiologists the other day. And, you know, people talk about that flow state or being in a zone. And, you know, for me, when I'm operating, if if like what is, you know, an hour or or 45 minutes for me feels like five minutes, you know, mm. and so it, it's 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 sort of that one of those times where, you know, my everything, my all my efforts, my mind, my focus is so concentrated, you know, so I, I really enjoy um, surgery. But I think equal to enjoying the surgery is enjoying the human relationships. You know, I think that as a as an ophthalmologist, as a doctor in general, you meet so many people, so many people, so many backgrounds who invite you into their space, literally, you know. Uh, you're very close to the person. They invite you into their lives. They share very intimate things with you they trust you um and that's an experience that i think we're really i feel very privileged to have and i think as doctors we're all very privileged to have so i always think of it as you know it's it's the patient's choice to choose me or to come to me but it's my privilege to be their doctor so i really really enjoy that that part of it is there any part of your job even the job description that is not very exciting, even mundane at times? Of course, for sure. Uh, I mean, gosh, I don't even, of course, I mean, there. it's not like it's, oh my God, every day, you know, rainbows and ice cream. <laughs> um, you know, sometimes patients can be frustrating. I'll tell you, 
right now, uh, during COVID, I've been working at Elmhurst and, yeah. you know, clearly I'm not a, a, a critical care doctor or a pulmonologist or I don't have a specialty that um, is critical in, um, in this COVID pandemic right now. But um, I do think as a healthcare worker, again, you know, I have a duty to help and a duty to serve. So what I have been doing most recently are video visits, right? So I've been going into the hospital and I've been um, covering the, the, the vented patients, the patients on ventilators, particularly those patients, because we did notice that some of them were having exposure keratopathy. That means that sometimes invented patients, they can't close their eyes uh, because they're paralyzed and, and heavily mm. sedated. And so with the eye being open, which is why Dr. Marn, in all of our cases that we do, or even cases that you do that's not eye cases, you guys always tape the eye shut, right? Or yes. when, mm-hmm. um, when we're operating on one eye, we always tape the other eye shut. Right. to protect the eyes. Um, and so some of the vented patients uh, are always closing their eyes all the way. And then is the eyes just constantly exposed to air. It gets dry. The yep. conjunctiva gets swollen and can bulge out. The cornea can develop, um, you know, abrasions and scars. And so we noticed that when we were just helping out with these video visits, um, me and one of my colleagues. And so then we decided, you know what, we should take charge of all of the vented patients with these video visits. That way we could do bedside eye exams. And we created a, a flow sheet to help the nurses and doctors on those units on how to manage these conditions, how to, how to evaluate who needs what, and then and then so anyway i've been doing that and um with the video visits families are so grateful right and Mm -hmm. and it's been an emotional and sometimes emotionally draining experience because you know you're part of a very intimate moment with families that ordinarily as the doctor you would necessarily you would not be in the room necessarily while the family is visiting right that's a private moment So you get to be a part of that moment and sometimes it's very emotional and people are crying and, you know, the horror and fear on on a family member's face when they see their family member so sick and on the vent has been, you know, it's brought me to tears during those visits. Um, But then there's some family members, um, one that I can think of in particular that... um, it, it makes me sad when people can be so caught up in their own grief and their own, um, you know, challenging time that they don't also think about other people, you know? So there's one family that like demands multiple visits a day and um, just, it just, you know, it, it upsets me to an extent mm-hmm. and I feel um badly for being upset about it you know because i understand their grief and their um you know their hard time but you know if if and and the hospital has been actually very accommodating and 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 in honoring their request for three visits a day but you know that means that um you know another family 
you know, if I, if I, and I don't do it, I, I go once a day and then another team may go later on in the day back right. to that particular family because, you know, there, there were, now the problem has decompressed quite significantly. But in the beginning, when there were so many patients, you, you, you had to be a bit judicious with the time that you spent in each patient's room so that every yes. family can see their family member, you know? Right. And so sometimes that, um, that kind of thing would bother me when patients uh, and I know patients are people, right? Just like doctors are people. And mm -hmm. sometimes we're imperfect, you know, and sometimes we're selfish and, and I'm sure I am too, you know? Um, yeah. But sometimes when, when, when people behave in a way like that, it does make me upset and disappointed. And, so those are some understandable. Of, yeah, those are some of the things in the work. And you can imagine, you know, sometimes if, yes. a, if, a, if you're in an office and a patient's waiting a long time and, you know, I get their frustration, too. But, you know, it, it that's what it's going to be sometimes, you know, let's say another patient is there who has an emergency and you have to spend a lot more time dealing with their acute issue. It's going to, um, you know, delay the day for everyone else, you know. So sometimes you would hope that people can give you the grace that they would hope somebody else would extend to them or for them yeah. if they were the one in an, in an emergent situation. Um, do you think there's any particular skills or, um, or qualities that make up a ideal ophthalmologist? Um... I don't know if there's for for ophthalmology in general. I mean, I think having good surgical skills, if you're going to be that type of doctor who does surgery, I think that's really important. You know, not every not every doctor is a good doctor. Not every surgeon is a good surgeon, you know, and I think it's important to know your strengths and your weaknesses and be honest about that, you know. Um, but I think what makes a good uh, ophthalmologist is what makes a good doctor in general. You know, I think mm. that's integrity honesty um and being willing to to be committed to your patients and be committed to their well-being you know so you know if you have if if the patient has or if there's a bad outcome you have to be willing to stick with it and see them through it and hopefully get to the other side of it you know it's not always success in everything you know and some of that is you know, some of that is what the body's going to do, and 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 some of that may be what 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 um, intervention you chose. Maybe there's a better one, or maybe there's a different one that might work better for this patient. And I think it's just important to be committed to the long haul. You know, some things are very like you know the low hanging fruits. And a lot of what I do tends to be low-hanging fruits, which is why I like what I do, <laughs> because, um, you know, it's, it's, it's satisfying. It's like, it's like instant gratification, you know. That's, that's what do you the, mean by low-hanging fruit for ophthalmology? What I mean is, like that woman who had, uh, like the, the Asian patient I told you about in my residency. Right. She went mm -hmm. from blind to a week later seeing great. You know, Got it. like th there's, Got a, it. there's a lot of things in medicine that's a lot of sort of chronic disease. Personally, I really don't like chronic disease. I like problems mm -hmm. that I can diagnose and fix. And then, you know, we're all happy and high five. But they're not Got always going to be that way, you right. know. And so you, ha you can't 
you can't pick and choose and you can't say, oh my God, no, this patient's going to be too difficult. This case is going to be too difficult. Let me send it to somebody else. If it's out of your skill set, you know, then certainly do that. But if yes. it's if it's just inconvenient or going to be too much work, you, you can't you can't be that kind of a doctor, you know. So I Understood. yeah, I think what makes a good doctor, what makes a good ophthalmologist is is that honesty, integrity and and commitment to your patient's well-being. You know, Samisha, I want to get to where you 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 talked about it briefly, how you started thinking about becoming an ophthalmologist. But even before that. Were you always interested in medicine? Was that something that was on your mind when you were in high school or um, even college? Or even kindergarten, maybe? No. So, <laughs> it, it, you know, I know a lot of doctors have this story. I, I, I do. And, and it's the truth. But um, when I was like six years old, I said, I'm going to be a doctor because I want to take care of my grandmother when she's old. That was my really. Memory. Yeah, but I didn't know what that I didn't know what that really meant. I just knew I I loved my grandmother so much and I wanted mm-hmm. to make sure she was always okay, right? When she got old. And right. um so that's what I said and then my family just wouldn't let it go. Okay, so Misha's going to be a doctor. So then I Oh really? Oh yeah. So so it wasn't until, and and then I I everything I did from that early on or you know certainly I mean I was a very serious student. I really cared about my grades. I really cared about academics. I studied like my, you know my parents are immigrants and and to an extent that's almost been kind of a blessing to me because um you know, they they didn't have a lot and they were just sort of focused on keeping shelter and food, you know, for us. We I didn't mm-hmm. you know, they didn't know, uh, you know, extracurricular things for us. I mean, we were pretty much latchkey kids because they worked and we stayed home alone. You know, there were there were three of us from my siblings. And then I had other cousins and we all lived in this house that my grandmother owned with multiple apartments in it. And so um, we would all just go to school together in a pack and come home in a pack. And that's mm-hmm. what we did. And I think that, you know, maybe because my parents were not so knowledgeable about, you know, enrichment things for, for kids or whatever, they were just trying to make ends meet for us, that I had to find those things for myself, you know. So very early on, I felt responsible for my success if you will you know and and maybe that's just god's grace and and blessing and not you know through my own efforts you know some somehow that thought came into my head that i needed to be responsible for my future at a very very young age and so i was a very studious student and teachers recognized that and would you know tell my parents that I should do get into this extra talented and gifted thing and what have you and then I went to you know a math and science sort of focused high school I did research at Long Island Jewish Hospital for three summers um, when I was in high school and actually out of that one of the researchers um, Henry Eisenberg who's now passed he was a microbiologist um, allowed me to participate in a research project that they were doing. So I had a publication in high school and Mm -hmm. yeah, you know, so, so, so you were proactive about 
your direction. Yes. You, you sought the, that research out. The research didn't come to you. You said, let me go look into this. Yes. However, there was um, a woman, her name um, is Carolyn Snipe, who also passed away several years ago from pancreatic cancer. And she uh, was an administrator at Long Island Jewish Hospital. Her daughter uh, was a year ahead of me in high school and we were friends. And because her daughter went to my high school, she her daughter was um, uh, at the time more interested in journalism. She wasn't pre-med or anything like that. Um, and she was a journalist for a while and is now doing other things. But uh, Miss Snipe started this research program at LIJ targeted towards um, underrepresented minorities in my high school. So that's, you know, I, I, I'm not taking credit for just, you know, calling them up and doing, I'm saying this, there was a parent who happened to be in um, hospital administration who started this program. And there were several of us from my high school who today are doctors because of Carolyn Snipe and because of this program and this early exposure and support we got. What so a great program. Yeah. So, but let me just say, Mount Sinai has something similar too, by the way, but let me just say this. So it wasn't until I was in college that I was thinking, wait a minute, I never considered anything else. Like what, what do, I want to be a doctor. Why now I want, you know? <laughs> and so at that time I started um, taking, you know, history of art and um, psychology of religion and all these other types of courses to just sort of broaden my scope um, I didn't go to medical school right away. I, I got a research fellowship, but before I even did the research fellowship, I spent a few months working in healthcare consulting in Washington, D.C. And that's when I was like, mm, no, I don't like this office work thing. <laughs> I think I should really? stick with medicine. Yeah, it's just, it's not the same. And and who knows, like maybe maybe I just didn't do it long enough or didn't find my niche or whatever, but the thing about medicine is that um, that that made me realize that this was sort of better for me was that it's that that impact, you know, the impact on people's lives directly that was very fulfilling and is continues today to be very fulfilling to me. But my point is, I, I pigeonholed myself very early on, never really mm -hmm. considered or explored other things. Um, and I, I, I'm not saying that ne that is necessarily a good thing. I, I actually don't think it's a good thing. I think it, it worked okay for me because um, I was very focused and targeted. Um, yes. But, you know, it's not necessarily the way I would advise, you know, other people to approach medicine. Like if I had to you, do it all over again. I, yeah, I, what would you do differently? Okay, so... Um, yeah, I, I would have been a lot more open-minded about other things. I would have read a lot more, just in general. Just just read, 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 read. Whatever you can get your hands on, read. Be knowledgeable, you know. Don't make decisions in a, in a vacuum, you know. Um, I would have, there were other types of programs out there, like there's something called Inroads, and there's something called SEO, I think it's a student educational opportunity or something like that, that was also available in my high school and in other people's high schools. So I recommend people look into those. 
And in those situations, those are more uh, targeted towards business, you know. So mm -hmm. students get uh, placed in a company, um, and that's in college or high school, and then they get mentors. And, you know, you learn different career paths in the sort of business sector, you know. Okay. Um, so that's one, one thing, you know. I think that... As a child of immigrants, also, I was thinking about, um, I was thinking more along the lines of stability, you know, and medicine was, I mean, now look at COVID just wreaking havoc on uh, yeah. the, the healthcare industry and, and ophthalmology in particular, you know, I think we're probably one of the hardest hit specialties in terms of, um, you know, our, our patient census, I mean, has gone to like very, very low relative to how many right. patients we were seeing as a practice, you know, as a specialty um, in the country, but certainly in our department. Um, in any case, it, 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 medicine was safe in a lot of ways and, and suited my sort of values and personality. But I think there are other things that could have too, you know, and I, and I just, I think that I would have I don't regret being going into medicine. I, I actually think it's been a blessing, but I think I also, you know, wish that I had been a little bit more open-minded about other things. You you did mention about how the current pandemic has changed your career, at least currently. Mm -hmm. You know, and there's other things that are happening too. You know, there's other changes that are are, are big changes, you know, whether it's be changing like technology, social media, climate change, and of course the pandemic. Are, where do you see uh, ophthalmology and pediatric ophthalmology? Uh, what changes do you expect in maybe five years from now in your career? Yeah, uh, you either know, for yourself personally or in the grander scheme of things. Yeah, I think that technology is probably going to play an even bigger role in our specialty, you know? I think that um, this this pandemic alone has uh, pushed a lot of ophthalmologists and certainly in our department towards uh, telemedicine. You know, we've been talking about telemedicine and we've been, yes, you know, years. yeah, but now we're actually doing it, you know, because <laughs> we have to, because there was no other way to actually see our patients and know what problems they're having and, and help them get whatever it is they need, or even know that they're in an em emergency situation and actually need to come in despite, you know, social distancing and, and this pandemic. You know, there were our patients that we have had to see on an emergency basi uh, basis, you know, that things that absolutely need acute care. And that's, that's, that's been happening. But I think that we're going to have to find ways to use technology to make uh, remote care a real reality, you know? So I think we're going to have to have more sort of artificial intelligence uh, in our practice to help with screening and um, improving access to ophthalmologists where you may not necessarily need to, you know, be in an office with somebody, but you can maybe uh, have a device on your phone or um, or some, you know, kiosk that you go into that does a, mm -hmm. you know, complete whatever and then sends that information to the doctor who can then, you know, whatever. I just think that it's going to be a lot more tech heavy and a lot more, um, you know, not as 
in office based practicing. Got it. Do you, uh, is there any way that, or any resources that you could recommend someone to look into or maybe listen to or read about or an organization to research online or, or, or call to uh, learn more about your specialty in your career? Um, huh, that's interesting. Uh, you know, I think that they, the, this generation or the, the, the this way we live today, information is now at our fingertips, right? Like, you don't have to go to a library anymore and go look up books and check mm-hmm. them out. You know, you can just go on the internet. You know, there are, there are, just go on YouTube and, and, yeah. and check out ophthalmology or, you know, there, there, there are um, surgeries that you can watch on YouTube or on the internet. Um, there is the uh, American Academy of Ophthalmology um, website uh, for pediatric ophthalmology. There's um, it's uh, the American Academy of Pediatric Ophthalmology and Strabismus. You can look that up to learn more about pediatric ophthalmology. But honestly, I think that um, just Googling the University of Iowa also has um, a lot of uh, information. And I think they had a website that um was almost almost like a forum based. I, I, there's something mm. else called studentdoctor.net that I was addicted to when I was um, in medical <laughs> school. I don't know if you did that too, but no. that is studentdoctor.net is a forum of uh, uh, of either people in residency or people applying for medical school or people applying for residency. And so you can get a lot of information about, you know, different programs, information about um, the application process, um, it, you know, so if you were waiting, like I remember when I was applying for residency, waiting for interview letters, you know, people would post on there like such and such program sent out, um, you know, invitation letters yesterday. So if you got it in, you know, a few days, you know, you got an interview. If you didn't, you know, <laughs> they did not invite you for an interview, you know, so and you <laughs> can remember what a stressful time that was, you know, so yeah. it was nice having um, having uh those resources out there. So now I think if you want to learn anything about anything in medicine, just Google it, really. And go- <laughs> really, at Google videos or YouTube videos, um, yeah. it's almost like that rabbit hole, right? You'll, you'll One link leads to another link leads to another link, but the information is there. And I would, I would definitely encourage people to do their homework, you know? Like I said, don't make decisions in a vacuum. One other piece of advice I would tell people is, um, I remember when I was in medical school, I had uh, I'd gone to the same place for medical school and college. And so my, my research mentor was my same, we, we did this, we did, you know, research together from the time I was in um, medical, uh, undergrad throughout my college time. And so I went to him when I was trying to figure out what to do, and I and I said, oh, you know, I was, I'm thinking about dermatology, because dermatology, you still have procedures, and, you know, maybe I would have been a Mohs surgeon or something like that, or hair transplant surgeon, mm-hmm. and he said to me, Misha, people who want to, people who want to help people don't become dermatologists. Now, that's just not true. <laughs> okay. That's not true, right? <laughs> like, that's his opinion, 
that's right. that's not a fact but you know when you're so young and you don't know anything somebody who's been your mentor who knows so much more than you you know you accept that and you say okay mm -hmm. then I'm not gonna do that and I I regret not um, remembering that or not knowing that at that time advice it's just a suggestion. You can take it or leave it, you know, and ask multiple people, you know, we don't, nobody knows everything, you know, right. so constantly seek advice and guidance in everything, even till today, you know, I'm, I'm a, a experienced uh, physician and, and what have you, but I still will call up mentors or even, you know, my peers to ask their opinion about the management of this or how I should handle that. And, you know, I'm always seeking advice, even my college friends. Recently, I, I called on them for advice on something really important um, related to my work. And, you know, and, and, not, and none of them are doctors, you know, and they were very helpful in, in, in giving some advice mm. and guidance. So I think always seeking guidance, you know, is very helpful and it can come from various places it doesn't have to come from another doctor or uh, a super educated person or you know and it can come from so many different sources you know misha there's one thing that i wanted to talk about and i haven't brought it up yet you were uh, and i only found this out after i got your resume and your cv you're a fulbright scholar yes thank you I, am. I think that's so cool because <laughs> I, that's only a handful of people get to receive that honor every year. What, what, how did that, what, can you tell us what that is and what you did with that scholarship? Sure. So um, it's a, a research fellowship and um, it's, uh, you know, quite competitive and prestigious and um, you get support for, um, in my case, it was research, but other people do other types of projects. Um, mine was, I told you I was interested in sickle cell disease. So right. mine was a project looking at um, the dysfunction of, of the spleen in patients with sickle cell disease um, and how that compares uh, to a Ghanaian population. So patients in Ghana versus in uh, patients in the United States. Um, and so I got support for that. I had done a pilot study uh, the year before and then, uh, you know, had had some evidence that this was worth studying. And so then uh, created, you know, a proposal and, and a grant application and, and was supported by Fulbright for that work. And you were doing research where during that time? I was in Ghana at in Kumasi. It's the second largest city in the country, um, at a hospital called um, uh, uh, Akompanochi. It's it's a hospital uh, linked to their their second largest medical school, um, the uh, Science and Technology Medical School in in Ghana. And so that's that's where I had been based. I think that's pretty awesome. Thank you. Awesome. It was it was a very meaningful experience. Is there any other parting uh, thoughts uh, for a student interested in your career, or even just lasting uh, <laughs> life advice? 
You know, I, I think... You've given a lot, by the way, already. Oh, I'm, <laughs> I'm glad. I'm glad. I think that... Um, I think it's really important to be honest with yourself. You know? Like, at some point, quiet the noise around you. Don't worry about what somebody else will think or what your parents will think or whatever. Just... You know, when you're making decisions like this that's going to impact the rest of your life, like I said, do seek advice, do seek guidance. You know, I'm not saying ignore what they think. I'm just saying take a moment to pretend like you were just this island onto yourself and be honest with yourself about what what what's the thing that makes you jump out of bed in the morning? You know, what's the mm-hmm. what really makes you feel joy what really makes you feel a sense of purpose or motivation it it may not be medicine you know it may be something very different and you know be honest with yourself about what that thing is and then try to figure out how to get closer to that thing you may even be able to get closer to that thing indirectly through medicine or a part of medicine or what or what have you but I just think it's really important to to be honest with yourself about what you really want. I think a lot of times, and and, and certainly for me, you know, I, I did a lot of what was expected of me or what was what was required um, to get to the next level without you know really examining is this really what I want or is this really mm-hmm. the best way to do this or you know that kind of thing, and 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 you know. I think be bold in some ways too, you know, it, it may mean leaving your comfort zone, leaving where you live, leaving your, your neighborhood, leaving your country even. And, uh, hmm. I think it, I, I, I say really ask those questions of yourself every, a lot, ask it over and over again, different, different times in your life. That question may mean something different to you, you know? Yeah. So, Misha, thank you so much for being part of this. I think this is a wonderful uh, information you gave and perspective, and I think um, I think a lot of people will will benefit from it. I hope thank so. You. Thank you for asking me, Dr. Maran. I'm so grateful. You've been listening to Health Careers with Dr. Maran. If you like what you heard today, then please subscribe to this podcast. You can find this podcast on Apple Podcast, Spotify, or however you get your podcasts. And if you know someone who's thinking about their career, please tell them about this podcast, Health Careers with Dr. Marn. If you're already a subscriber, thank you. And please go to Apple Podcasts and rate us or leave us a review. It's a great way to let other people know about the show. Or you can go to our website at healthcareerswithdrmarn.com or hcwithdrmarn.com. Through the website, you can subscribe to our email list, contact me, let me know if there are any particular health careers that you'd like to hear about, and provide any comments on how this can be a better podcast for you. I'm Dr. Richard Marn, and thanks for listening, and I hope you will tune in again. Music